Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here. Apologies about the long delay between episodes here. As you'll be able to hear on this recording, I was unfortunately under the weather there for a few weeks, and I'm only just getting back onto the bandwagon. This week, I interview Horace about the trillion-dollar question. What will heavy micromobility, those vehicles in the 50 to 500 kilogram category, look like, and why could they be the realm of the defining vehicles of our time? With Arkimoto, who we've covered on this podcast in episode number 46, hitting a $1 billion market cap, I wanted to circle back on this topic again and ask Horace where his thinking has got to. I have also got an exciting update to share with you. We'll be starting to produce YouTube videos in addition to these podcasts. One of the things that's been obvious to me since we started was that a lot of the micromobility we are talking about is actually quite visual and tactile. While I can't bring you the vehicles, we can at least talk about those building the vehicles and companies in the space and show their wares a bit better, retaining the format of this long form interview content. We'll be moving to an alternating week cadence for the podcasts and videos. And the first video that we have coming up is from a company that I'm super excited about, Tour Scooters from London, who are building one of the best designed and coolest looking scooters I've seen on the market. It's a great debut with their founder, Carson Brown, and we'll be going up in the next few days. And we also have an incredible pipeline of guests over the next few months from all over the industry talking about the future of lightweight electric vehicles and the companies that are producing them. If you haven't already, sign up to the Micromobility newsletter to get weekly updates from the team, and that can be accessed at micromobility.io. Otherwise, great to have you back and really looking forward to the next couple of months with you. And here is Horace. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Micromobility. I'm your host, Oliver Bruce, along with Horace. Did you? How are you going today, Horace? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks. Excellent. We started off this conversation because we're going to be talking about heavy micromobility today again. We started because you're doing a little bit of work in carbon emissions and looking at the carbon impacts of micromobility. And so I know we're not going to go into it full depth because there's a whole bunch of podcasts we can make out of this that really need to go. We actually need to go into a fair amount of depth with, but just at a sort of a top line, do you want to just run us through what you're thinking there for folks who might be interested in talking to you more about that and or, you know, you see they'll see you stuff posting stuff on Twitter and things like this? Yeah. So forgive me if, you know, this sounds more of a teaser because we can't get into it now, but sort of as a foreshadowing of what we're possibly going to be doing, probably we're going to be doing, certainly we're going to be doing, it's to shed light on the question of how micromobility can mitigate climate change and how it can actually lead to reduction in carbon emissions to such an extent that actually we can, you know, be more optimistic about meeting targets. And I've been looking at the entire question of like, you know, what is the target? How big is the challenge? And so on. And so some of that requires a basic foundation and and education. So we're not going to begin by, you know, starting on the argument that we're going to hit X tons of carbon without knowing what is the relevant X and how big should it be and so on. So there's a need to prime the pump, so to speak, on the intellectual argument. 
And the whole thesis of even bringing in environmental concerns to the micromobility thesis, that is something that I've struggled with because until now, we've made arguments on the basis of utility, that micro is more convenient and more economical for the user, but at the same time, it grows opportunity and therefore there's profit motive that most people who are in it are not in it for altruistic reasons, but because it actually is better and is a viable business. And that's why it's fueled by capital. And it's supported by governments because of the utility and the increased access and increased equity and all these other good things. Increased optionality, I should say, because we're seeing a new mode emerge, which is an option for people who have few options and so on and so on. So there's a lot of value to micromobility without bringing in the question of the environment. And I've sort of wanted to dive too far in that direction. There's also a lot of detractors who say there are short-term negatives. Well, there are short-term negatives with electric cars as well. We know that it costs a lot to manufacture things and so on. So my point though is this, that if we're gonna dive into this, we wanna be careful and also target specific outcomes. Like, do we wanna go towards policy? Do we wanna go towards branding and evolving the story of micromobility as something more than a fun and possibly profitable idea. I think we want to make it to say this is going to actually help change the world for the better in ways that it needs changing as opposed to just it's nice to have. So that is on the conversation you're going to hear from us. We're preparing it as we speak and we'll be you know delivering it in a few weeks, I hope. I'm incredibly excited about it. I think micromobility is certainly, you know, carbon emissions are certainly, I think anybody who's listened to the show any any number of times knows this is the reason I kind of got into it. I can see the potential for it and being able to rapidly reduce emissions as we can build the vehicles in that space, which actually in some ways kind of brings us to today, because I want to talk about, there was an article that kind of blew up on Twitter in the last week. It was written by a lady called Lavender Ao, and it was about how in China, these neighborhood electric vehicles or these lightweight electric vehicles have really taken off and are now the outstripping the Tesla Model 3 as being the most sold vehicles in China in the electric vehicle space. And you shared it and Kevin Kelly shared it and a bunch of others have shared it. It's obviously very exciting. And I wanted to kind of go back to our original thesis that micromobility is everything up to 500 kgs. And the reason that it exists is because that up to mm-hmm. 500 kgs, the limit at 500 kgs is because until now cars mm-hmm. really haven't been able to be built under 500 kgs for a whole range of reasons. So there's a design space that's open there for these new form electric vehicles. So yeah, I guess the reflections that I wanted to have from you, Horace, in this is what did you see in that article that was interesting and why, you know, is this, there was a couple of quotes that you shared from there that I thought you might want to repeat because they were pretty excellent in terms of the future of electric vehicles is a bunch of people in Shenzhen putting together a bunch of, stucking a bunch of panels on the side of these things, you know? Actually, so you said you got into micro because of the environmental issues. I got into micro because actually I started looking at small cars and I actually started looking at, you know, these were initially called neighborhood electric vehicles or golf cars. By the way, just a quick note, and this sort of irritates me a little bit, but it's golf cars, not carts. And everybody says golf carts. And I found out that actually the industry itself wants to call itself golf cars. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But it just amuses me how words are so sensitive. But yeah, so you have these four-wheel electric microcars, if you will. 
And, you know, I, I was curious about it. And this was the Gordon Murray T25. That was, a, it's about 10 years ago that began. And I started looking at it back then. I think it was 2008 when it was posited or designed. And so the thinking on these cars is that they were in a no man's land. You were either going to be a proper car or you're going to be a motorcycle. This again predates these are motorized vehicles predating micromobility, so about 10 years ago. And the problem with these small cars is that although there were categories of such cars in our recent histories, whether you're in Europe or Asia or USA, they became effectively extinct. And the market bifurcated deeply into super small or super large. And in the super small motorized space were, you know, effectively mopeds and motorcycles. And the super large were, of course, cars. And there were fewer and fewer small cars, not even micro cars, but there were fewer and fewer small cars or compact cars or cars at all. Everything became trucks. Everything got supersized in the auto sector. And that's still ongoing. And I asked myself this simple question, why are we abandoning this this land, mm. this this ground, which used to be so fertile, where we had the Fiat 500s, the Morris Mini, the 2CV from France, where we had even the Beetle, although that's not, these are not quite micro cars, but they were sort of mini cars. And they were the, the most common vehicle type. And not only did the market flee from them, but it effectively, you know, had a, a scorched earth approach because it actually made that land unusable. We ended up with a situation where government perhaps, I wouldn't say conspired, but it effectively cooperated with the industry and effectively burned that ground. And there cannot be a small vehicle. So the, the way it begins, my narrative on the subject is that there was a time in 1950s where the Fiat 500 was created, where it flourished. This is the original Cinquecento, the Cinquecento Nuovo, actually. This is the iconic small Italian car that was loved and still loved by many. It was in production until the 1970s. Millions were made. Variants like the 600 not only mobilized Italy, but mobilized Spain and mobilized parts of Eastern Europe and so on. So it was an extremely successful category. And again, I speak of the 500 as only sort of the, the iconic uh, mm -hmm. equivalent of the whole category. And, and that flourished. And now if you present this model to people today, they look at it and say, oh, I could never imagine this being something I could own. And yet your parents or your grandparents would have raised you or your parents and, you know, lived with that vehicle as their primary mode of transport for decades. And it was not a question of whether it can do the job. It was absolutely capable. And yet now we think ourselves better. We think ourselves that we cannot make use of this. But you look at the specifications and there's a perfectly adequate vehicle. Not only does it have room for four people, but it can carry things. It's got range, it's got speed, it's got all the things you need. And this is a 1950s technology today with computer-aided design. You can make it so that it's much more crash-worthy, that it's much more efficient and so on. So with electric power and batteries, you can imagine vehicles like this being very viable, but yet the industry has said no, not only so, but it's effectively impossible for a car to be manufactured today with that size or weight and be considered actually legal. And so we have legislated, even though we need to not go off a cliff with emissions, even though we need to find space for a lot more people in cities, even though we need to mobilize billions, we say 
this vehicle is illegal. There's a paradox in this, there's a fundamental paradox. Of course, you can go down the scale all the way down to a, a skateboard, but if you say as a society that no car can exist at that size point, and again, 500 kilos happens to be the weight of a Fiat 500. If we say this, then what are we saying overall? What are we saying overall if you do not provide design freedom for automakers to go down in weight, and if they themselves, given that freedom, would rush in the opposite direction? What's really going on? This is why I take this case of the microcar as kind of the lie, you know, the original sin of the auto industry, that it has decided that this is impossible. What was possible, what was joy to millions, what is delightful to many, because even if you read about these cars, people absolutely adored them. And even today, car critics say that the Fiat 500 is one of the best cars ever made. And yet we call them illegal today. What's going on? So put, put aside history, mm -hmm. put aside the paradox. The question is, what's going on in the real world today as far as this space. And this is where this article popped up again in my feed. And you, you know, obviously, I knew about this 10 years ago. It was paradox. You know, so, but now suddenly they're popping up again. And why? Because of China. In China, these vehicles are being made by the million. And they're completely invisible because they don't count as cars. They're not counted in the register of car registrations. They're not measured by industry analysts. They're not you know, weighed against the sort of the output of China's industrial sector, etc., etc. They're flying under the radar. In fact, there are illegal. And this is what the article points out. There are many municipalities have banned these vehicles. Government overall, I guess sort of central government has said that these are not proper cars and they should not be insured and they should not be licensed and they should not be permitted and so on and so on. So everyone's against them in China. And yet due to either loopholes or the variability of application of law in China, they are still sort of sneaking through and their factories making them by the million, as I said. And so why? Well, the article goes into detail as to where the demand comes from. It comes from the elderly. It comes from mothers who are using them to take children to school. It is mostly in rural areas or city edge areas, which is that is on the periphery of cities where you have the transition from rural and urban. And in those areas, the distances are fairly long and transit is probably less dense. And so you have this demand for this marginalized population and the prices are super low. And they're just used and used and used. And they're sold even though, again, the policemen are supposed to shut down these shops. They're sold alongside mopeds and all these other things. They're crude. But there's actually a fascinating thing. Sandy Monroe was asked to have a look at one of these things. A fellow from Jalopnik. I love that vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> I forget his name. Oh, yeah, it's called the, the, the this, this, yeah. this, uh, Oh, you mean the uh, the guy from Jalopnik? Yeah, I don't know his name either, but he goes and he bought one of these really low ones. Yeah, he brought it over to Sandy's yeah. shop. Yeah. He brought it to Sandy to have a look, and Sandy was blown away. He said, this thing, freight on board, was like $800 or something ridiculous. It's certainly not in the 1000 range. And he brought it in and and had, there's a, like a 15-minute video you can watch on YouTube about it. And he's like, he's blown away by the cost, how, how it's possible to do this at cost. It's got stainless steel bumpers. It's got a spare tire. It's got ventilation. It's got sliding windows. It's got all these features on it, which each one individually isn't a lot, but they add up when you put it all together. And it's still lead acid battery. It's still a brush motor. It's still very, very crude, but it does the job. It is effectively a golf car, but it 
it is sold in China as a mobility alternative. And again, so a flood of commentary came out as this article was posted. And most of the commentary was like, boy, I'd love to have one of these things. And mm-hmm. the answer is, you can't. You know, not really. You know, And this is true in Europe. It's true in China. It's true in the United States. The fact that they exist is such a disruptive story. The whole point of disruption is that you know this not only flies under the radar, but it's considered too beneath contempt is the word, right? It doesn't deserve our consideration even. And yet it is exactly emblematic of this space. Yeah, totally. And in that regard, I wonder if, obviously there'll be, I imagine a lot of pressure coming in from car companies that these vehicles would be banned purely. Like I, I imagine a lot of the regulatory capture has come about because car companies have decided that this is an area that they don't want to see any competition from. The one part that I did think that was very interesting, though, was that the Chinese electric vehicle that is the best-selling, which is the Mini, it's called the Mini, is actually a GM-based. That's a slightly different, and I don't know if that qualifies as micromobility. It's probably too heavy. There is this secondary trend, which is, you know, it's sort of related to this super, super small rural car market, but it are these sort of small electrics. And small electrics are more along the lines of, you know, a Mini or a Smart or a Fiat 500 of today, which is, again, with sufficient battery, it's going to tip the scales a little bit, you know, above 500. But the thing is that the idea of the Mini car is sort of coming back in China. This is a two-door vehicle that's electric, but fully, fully recognized as a car. But it is, again, and the article, you know, probably sensationally tries to claim that it's outselling Tesla, which isn't hard to do, frankly, because as Sandy Monroe himself says, there are 600 electric car companies in China alone. 600. That, what are they all doing? Well, they're doing these golf cars, first of all. They're probably not proper cars in that sense. But from those 600, you're going to have a dozen or so who are going to make proper cars. It's inexorable that there will be both the demand and supply of many electric cars, which China's demand is so huge. And India's is going to be the same thing. And so these electric cars are the David to the Goliath of traditional car makers who are going to make enormous electric SUVs and electric luxury cars, which is how the market has developed. And the early entrants who are economical, quote unquote, it's, you know, the Leafs and the plug-in Prius and all these other things. Everybody's like, (laughs) get rid of those. We really want to have giant land barges again, which are electric and again, use most of the energy to carry their own batteries Mm -hmm. around. But this is what micro is all about. When you ask these questions, you create these contrasts, these paradoxes. We talk about efficiency. We talk about land use. We talk about the underserved. We talk about billions who have no access to cars. And then you say, well, the answer is to make luxury cars and $100,000 price points. No. You have to look at the bottom of the market. And and so we jump all the way to the bottom and we talk about scooters. Great. We talk about bikes. Great. We talk about e-bikes. We talk about possibly, you know, pods or quads or three wheelers. But what about this other space? Because, you know, in the graph I did early on, I showed the weight of a bicycle. It's 25 kilograms Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. most. And you look at even the cargo bikes, you know, maybe 50 kilograms. God, that's a huge weight for a, you cannot pick it up. It's too heavy, right? That people say, okay, even within the community of micromobility is like, we cannot have micromobility defined as a vehicle that you cannot pick up. That's a great kind of like cutting off point. But what about between that point of 50 kilograms and all the way at 1500 kilograms, which is where most cars are today. In fact, they cannot go below something like 
I would say, I, even this is outrageous, is to say a thousand kilograms. Yeah. A thousand kilograms in the car design world is like, you're ridiculously light and, and it's unsafe. Yeah. So between 50 and a thousand, what do you do? What is that space for? Actually, actually, you're going to say to me that there's no legal way to provide transport for someone with a vehicle weighing between 50 and a thousand kilos. It's absurd. It's a, in fact, it is the sweet spot when you think about it. Those weights are exactly tuned to a family of four. If you're going to have a passenger count and a payload measure at those points of like, okay, four people plus their baggage, plus the stuff they need to carry. And you look at the payload, it goes up to about 300, 350 kilos, which is like the most a car is ever going to get filled with. It's actually at the limit of what a car can carry. And then you ask, okay, payload times two. Is that vehicle size? By the way, a bicycle or a cargo bicycle, get this, can usually carry four times its weight easily. Yeah. A bicycle or a cargo bike can carry four times its weight. A truck only, uh, this is the, the semi-tractor trailer trucks, they usually carry two times their weight. And a, a car carries half its weight, maximum. So it cannot carry its own weight. You know the old story about the ant that's able to carry 10 times its weight, right? The ant, the super animal, the super efficient animal, super powerful mm -hmm. animal, right? This is where, you know, the, all these mythologies start from like Spider-Man is so strong. It's like a spider, you know. A car cannot carry its own weight, whereas a bicycle can carry four times its weight. And in between these two extremes, what do we have? How about a vehicle that can carry just about its own weight? And yet, no such vehicles are allowed to be designed. And by the way, if you then start to talk about this space in the middle between, again, 50 kilos and 1,000 kilos, then you start to say, wait a minute, all of these objections about micromobility can suddenly be met. Can they be weather resistant? Right. Yes. Can they be dealing with longer distances? Yes. Can they carry passengers? Yes. Can they carry cargo? Yes. But they're illegal. Can they be safe? Can they be safe? Absolutely. Absolutely. But this space is no man's land, as I said. We cannot ever allow these things to exist. That is the law. And it's global. It's not like a conspiracy of like a few countries. It's a global conspiracy to outlaw the only reasonable vehicle size that's out there that meets really, truly the fat part of the tail that we need to fill. Now, the head of the curve is still micromobility in the light sense. That is where the most demand is in terms of trips. But I'm talking about the long tail. I'm talking about the trips above 10 kilometers or let's say five miles. Those trips, people will tend to say, well, I'm not going to take a scooter that far. Or I might find the bicycle ride to be a little tedious. And again, weather and all these other things thrown into that. And then you say, oh yeah, let's get into an SUV then. No, the answer is going to be a mini car or a micro car, which I consider, we should consider micromobility. And I'll take mm -hmm. that space. If you don't want it, I'll take it. We'll make it a part of micromobility. We'll expand micromobility to include all vehicles that actually get the job done, that are not wasteful in terms of having more capacity than is needed, and also having the inability to carry their own weight. That is where we are, and that is normative right now. We are going to say, no, normal is a vehicle that can carry its own weight, that is sized to a human being, that is sized to the distances that need to be traveled, not to some absurdities like 400 kilometers, which are rarely, rarely driven. So that's the thesis for heavy micromobility. And so talk me through why then China is interesting. The reason I bring it up is because you point out 
that these are illegal and yet they're being built in China, oftentimes illegally. And that there's a mm. sort of a gray area that exists for these vehicles to emerge. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. So why China is interesting is because it allows this experiment to run, you know, almost by accident or almost by a historical accident, really. And it often, you know, it's like, you know, every, the, what's the old saying? Like, you know, even if you pave the world, every square inch of it, a crack would emerge and a blade of grass will come through. You cannot stop this idea. And to the only question is, where will it take root? Will it take root in China? Will it take root in Africa? Will it take root in other parts of Asia? Will it do so because a, a two-wheel vehicle will evolve into a three and a four-wheel vehicle? Will it take root because somebody will just say, well, we need golf cars to be driven on the street for some strange reason? There's even a town in the United States where it's almost entirely served by golf cars or is it campus vehicles and all these other things and they take root and that's the thing about china is it's actually taking root in a large way it's been stamped out but it takes root again it's stamped out again and it takes root again and so it cannot be stamped out and then people eventually say hmm, maybe this isn't such a bad idea maybe all the talk we say publicly that we want to save the world and we want to reduce carbon we say that and then at the same time we smash anything that solves transportation issues of zero carbon. And somebody notices the contradiction. And you proving the contradiction with the facts, with, with the numbers. And all I'm saying is if you shed light on this, and we can run around for years ignorant of what's happening because it simply doesn't make the news. It doesn't show up on the press. And this is why we owe gratitude to Lavender, who goes out there and actually finds out the truth on the ground, which is plain to see for everyone, but nobody writes about it. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why is China important? Well, it's because it's the exception that proves the rule. It's the exception to the global prohibition on micro vehicles. Yeah, I mean, I hear you about China. I hear you about it being the exception that proves the rule. So then what's changed? Well, so the China story, first of all, to me, the surprise of it, because I had known that this was a booming sector in the mid-2000s, maybe even towards the early 2010s. But then I heard that they were being banned. So the, the Chinese government said, no, we cannot allow these four-wheeled vehicles. And even, by the way, they banned e-bikes, they banned e-scooters, and they banned small rural electric cars. And this was industrial policy from China central government to say, no, we want to encourage proper cars. We want to encourage a proper industry that eventually leads to an export industry. And therefore, we have to sort of be consistent with the world world standards. That's how I read it. And sort of like, okay, this lovely experiment has now been ended. But no, what the news is, is that it has never gone away. There was this lovely little nugget in this story that the users are scary, this yeah, is what I the phrase was. The users, the buyers of these vehicles are scary. And, they, and they, why are they scary? They're old men and women. And they said, no, these used to be the old red guards. These were the people the who now yeah. set out to enforce the Great Leap Forward or the revolution, if you will. Uh, you know, It was a bloody thing, make no mistake. And these, these people were feared. And now they're elderly and no one's going to mess with them. No one's going to tell them you can't do this and you can't do that. They have no respect for this younger generation who's rich, who hasn't struggled like they did, who hasn't gone through these terrible uh, turmoil and era 
of Maoists. So in, in many ways, the resilience of this movement is precisely because the people... See, Clay has this great phrase. He talks about these underserved people, these people who were the customer. You know, who is the customer for disruption? They tend to be dregs of society. They're the low end of the unsophisticated customer, the less demanding customer all these euphemisms. And what it meant in the United States in the 1960s and 70s, it was the teenager, it was these rebellious youths. And now the rebellious people are the elderly in China. They are the ones who are saying, and even in Europe, it's like the adoption of e-bikes has been amongst the elderly. And so it's funny to think of micromobility because we think of them as, you know, youthful people jumping on these scooters. But it's also a lot of marginalized people. It's also people who are of a certain age. And so what the surprise of this article to me was that it's still alive. It's still going against all these odds, against all of these measures of trying to ban them. And as a result, there's still a lot of great product being built. And in fact, the article ends with this tremendous quote saying that the future of transportation is not being made in Mountain View. It's made in Shenzhen or some other edge city in China, where some guys are putting panels on a golf car effectively and selling them to elderly gentlemen or ladies. And so this gave me hope that it's still going and you cannot pave over this forever. And it's going to eventually travel. Now, how does it go to market elsewhere? That is the open question today. Well, that's a question I'd love to dig into. I think having watched this space very closely, I've got a hopefully a discussion with Mark from my, the CEO of Akimoto coming up. We're going to do that as a webinar for micromobility membership. We will be talking through the vehicle that they've built, which is a three-wheeled, what they call a fun utility vehicle, but it's a three-wheeled <laughs> auto cycle. It, you can drive it with a car license. It's covered it's performant very similar to a car in the sense of it goes up to about 75 miles an hour. It has about 100 and something miles of range. You can use it for most of your trips, like as a standard commuter, and it costs about $20,000 now, but at the moment they're working with Sandy Monroe to bring that price down to about 10,000 or so. I've seen this space, I see it coming. I, I've actually driven an Akimoto and I think it's probably about 75% there. It's not quite a vehicle ready for prime time mm-hmm. yet there are things that I think are still necessary. But like, what else are you seeing, Horace? What else is interesting in the world of the heavy micromobility you're excited about? You know, this is the trillion dollar question is how does micromobility expand up to fill the 500 kilogram allocation, if you will? It's from 50 to 500, I would say, is, is the interesting space because although, again, it may not, and this is why it's tough because everyone, I've seen the business plans. I've tried to even work them out how does one actually build something in that space, given the constraints that exist? And this is why I think, again, China is an interesting example, because there the the logic is not, uh, let's figure out how to make this a, a global business with a million customers. It's more like, how can I sell 50 of these next year and thus, you know, stay alive? So the mentality is all about really just trying to survive as opposed to take over the world. These are two very, very opposite strategies. And and so this is where, you know, when you transplant the idea of, of heavy micro to the Western economies, if you will, it gets much more difficult to, to justify as a business. You know, people always find the fault with this idea. So questions about if it's $6,000, let's say, or $10,000, why not just buy a used car? 
This is the classic argument, right? Overserved, right? Overserved markets. Yeah. So you have you have other questions. Well, is it going to be registered as a car? Is it going to be registered as a motorcycle? Which again is a good question because the three wheeler in the U.S. you can make it a motorcycle, whereas maybe in Europe you need to declare it as a car. Although you might make it small enough to make it a motorcycle or a moped as well. Then you get into the question of what about insurance? What about helmets? What you know if it's a moped and you have helmets? What about can you get an exemption because it's got a roof and it's a roll bar or whatever? And, and people just get tangled up in all of these questions about trying to meet and jump through the hoops of regulations, because these are the laws. These are the rules on the land. Everyone is racking their brains as, how can I get around this, you know, sub, not subvert, but, you know, sort of go around the regulations and make something that obviously there's a demand for. Or if there is a demand, you know, who is the right customer? at the right time, in the right regions, and all of these other problems that you have to have on go-to-market. And so this is why, although my paradox is valid, I believe, the solution often is like people can't solve it. And I don't claim that I know how to solve it either. I'm just saying the way the markets work typically is that people experiment and find some way through, or maybe simply they confront the problem directly as many founders did in the last few decades with like even Uber. Uber started out and the reason it even existed was because it broke the rules. And in many ways, the ethos of the era, sort of the zeitgeist of our era is that to really make progress, you have to break the rules. And it, I grew up with in a time when, you know, the first thing you ask yourself is, what are the rules? How do we observe the rules and make still make money? Nowadays, the thinking is like, let's figure out a way to break the rules and get away with it. And in fact, that is what's happening in China. You know, I'm not saying that we should go out there and do civil disobedience on micromobility, but but perhaps that is the mentality that needs to exist. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't quite know what civil disobedience and micromobility would look like. Well, it would but be... I imagine it, it would probably be... look like being able to buy a vehicle that would be technically illegal, but then still be able to ride it because it's hard to tell. It's, it's like, it's like sort of it's uh, in a regulatory gray area, right? It's whether you're a rider or user or driver of a vehicle and yet you suffer the indignities of trying to import it. And, you know, you can probably import it, but you can't drive it, you know, and then going ahead and breaking rules by driving it. Do you know, there's a category we never talked about called a Velomobile. A Velomobile is a recumbent bicycle that has a fairing on top of it that allows it to be very aerodynamically efficient. So actually the most efficient vehicles in the world that have ever been devised have been Velomobiles. And they look goofy, you know, you're literally, you know, lying on your back on a bicycle wrapped in a sausage <laughs> so, or a fish-like shape that allows you to go through the air very efficiently. And people have been setting records on these things, both in terms of speed and energy per kilometer. And so what about the Velomobile? And the funny thing is there are forums and groups and discussions and so on and, and videos. And, and one of the things I kept seeing over and over again, dipping into that world was like, how many times did you get stopped by the police for riding your Velomobile? And the, the funny thing is there's nothing illegal about a Velomobile. A Velomobile is a bicycle. So people be, who ride them around get spotted by the police and pulled over because they don't look like bicycles. And they're saying, well, where's your, you know, where's your license plate? Where's your insurance? And they're like, this is a bicycle. And so they have to explain to the policeman and they carry papers with them, proving, having to prove their innocence. 
they're often electric. There's a company called Elf. Oh, uh, yes. A guy called Rob Cotter who came to, he's come to a bunch of the micromobility conferences. And he is adamant. I mean, he's like, this is the future. And I'm, I don't know if you've seen an Elf. Yeah, of course but, I have. But know, it, it, they are. They're fascinating looking they're, vehicles. They're, that's more of a stand totally, up. But they're not, they don't feel like the sort of thing that your, your average person no, might No, but might I'm not saying that, no, this is a mostly, mostly an argument I'm making about what does it mean to disobey? It's not even a question of, this is actually obeying the rules and yet being persecuted for obeying the rules because you look a little different. You are in something that does not conform visually, but it is, it is certainly uh, conforming to the letter of the law. But it's a, it is a hassle. And which proves one other thing, which is that society actually is, on one hand, de jure, which is of the law, and then is de facto, which is of the reality. These are two Latin words, the, the jury and the reality. The jury says one thing, but the reality says another. So often we end up in a situation where de facto, there's a normal behavior that's illegal. And this is why there's this question of, are you willing to go through the trouble of possible persecution? And this is, this is the whole idea of disobedience. You know, at some point, and cyclists have been like this, you know, militant about this for a long time, you know, but I do potentially anticipate a future where it becomes a mass movement, where people actively flaunt the rules. These are harmless, you know, activities to drive around the city in a, in a light vehicle is not going to hurt anyone. It's not a crime with a victim. And so the ideas of heavy micro and the sort of the, the question of adoption is going to have to be coupled with, to some extent, people who create these things and people who consume these things and actively both are in violation of what is de jure, but not de facto behavior. And only this way, I think we end up breaking the stalemate. You know, I'm reminded also, by the way, all the great cities in Europe that we celebrate for being cycling havens, Amsterdam or Copenhagen, didn't come to be cycling havens because the trajectory of history led them there. The trajectory of history was that there would be multi-lane highways going through the center of all these towns, and it was stopped by civil mm -hmm. action. It was it was stopped by people protesting mostly incited by actual victims who were killed by automobiles. And they said, no, we will not tolerate this in our cities. And and they stopped effectively what was a fait accompli, which was that this, the highway was going to come. And they pushed and pushed and pushed politically and did so with the standard techniques of, of civil action. So I, I'm not saying that micro will become this cause célèbre where you know, we, we all are in the streets about it. But it's a subtle pressure that needs to be applied. And, and it's also often things tip over slight, you know, after constant pressure, a very slight pressure as opposed to decisive pressure or a single act. It's more like you see more and more of it and you sort of become, you know, inured to it. One other thing, scooters have just gone through this. Whether you were in Germany or in the UK even today, these were vehicles that were banned it's absurd that, you know, and then one day they're not banned anymore. So the law somehow comes around. But in the meantime, how do you make that happen? In that case, it was obvious and it was top down. But in some cases, it's not obvious and it has to be bottoms up. 
Anyway, I'm not the right person to ask on how to make these things happen. I'm only an observer, but I'd just say that my impression is that we will see more and more of these micro vehicles. And now, back to Archimodo, and I think that the courage there is in founders to actually still go ahead and build a product and, you know, Mm. navigate the law, navigate the spaces where they're allowed to exist, but having the courage also, and I, you know, I would encourage the founders, I would encourage others to sort of say, I don't necessarily believe that the current law will be the law forever. This is important. You have to understand the laws change. And so when you look at the laws today, do you have faith that those can be bent or broken or even eliminated And at what rate of change will that happen? That's the really tragic thing is that we have to kind of think in terms of undoing this. You know, think of it as prohibition. Prohibition, you know, was something that was a force that could not withstand behavioral trends, but it was normal for a long time to ban all alcoholic consumption, and and the same with uh, cannabis. And you see how these things over time fall, and the question is only when and how and so on. And people are in jail still for having broken rules that were around substance consumption and so on. So anyway, I say this in a very tragic way, and it's unfortunate, but micro in some ways needs to somehow face up to the fact that uh, not everything we do will be accepted as legal, and yet it is the right thing to do. I can't agree with you more. The one thing I will say in all of this is just one of the things about having worked at Uber was there was a recognition that the status quo couldn't hold. And there was a thing that we knew, which is that if the alternative was provided, we knew that there would be people who would come out and fight for us. And this is in markets like Australia or New York or something like this, where where until now the solution that existed you know, people didn't know how bad it was until they realized what the alternative was, right? That there, that there was another thing that was available. And I think what we'll probably go through with micromobility is we will see these new vehicles that will emerge and then there will be pushback. There are going to be regulatory ways, for example, that you'll probably start seeing it as well with automakers and the pushback against e-bikes because they're going to start seeing that people are buying e-bikes as second vehicles, second cars. And there'll be things like, well, we don't want to have any of the rebates or any sort of subsidy schemes applied to them or anything like that at all. The question is, who is the obstacle here is is important. To some extent, we, we like to pin the blame on, yeah, probably the those who are incumbent who make the existing vehicles are the ones who are going to resist this change. I think they'll do so in spirit, but they may not do so in action. The real actions of resistance are actually your neighbor's. The tyranny is coming from those who simply say, we don't want change, period. And they'll cite mm. things. The mm. most cited obstacle to saving our planet, I'm going to say this out here, is safety. It is absolutely impossible to compete and argue against safety. But safety in the form of enormous land vehicles, which are armor-plated. Hey, why not just put guns on them while you're at it? But that is in all interest of safety. Surely you don't want your children hurt in an accident. How can we permit a vehicle? You must buy an SUV. Whenever I put up a site, you know, I cite a vehicle, isn't this awesome? I can guarantee that the first 
and second, third, and tenth responses are, yeah, but it's not safe. So if I say the Fiat 500 was an amazing car, they say, no, it's not safe. If I say, well, we shouldn't have SUVs, I just did this yesterday, we shouldn't, we should ban SUVs, or I think, I actually said, I think SUVs will be banned. I sense it, I sense it. And people are like, yeah, but SUVs save lives. This is the argument. So how do you fight against this? You know, because who puts up the safety argument? Well, your neighbors do. It's your community association, which says you cannot plug your car into the garage. It's true in where I live. You want an electric car? The answer is no. And who says no? Your neighbors do. You have to confront the tyrant here. We'd like to sort of find the tyrants in some central location, conspiring with other tyrants, but it's not, it's us. And, and so the question then is, how do we change us? And how do we get the neighbors to come around? They're the least likely to take a risk. They're the least likely to accept new things, right? This is the standard S curve. You have the middle and the late, and those are the majority. That means it is us. And so the, what the government does is it reflects the majority. It reflects the concerns, perhaps some more than others, the vocal and the loud get more say in the matter, but who is the most vocal? And that, you know, again, it's your neighbor. So my point is simply that you change behavior by standing up, making an example with your behavior, and then saying, no, just watch me. I'm not going to say anything, just watch me. And I'll do the right thing and I'll stand mm. up for what I think is right. And so by your example, by sheer character, you make the change happen. And so let's not always this throw rocks at somebody who we assume will stand in our way. I think it's mostly like we need to do it ourselves. And one thing about car makers, it's like, okay, I don't think that they're particular, I mean, uh, not to defend anything they do, but it's like, they're not that smart, to be honest. It's like, like they don't have a meeting to discuss how do we stop e-bikes. They, that's, you know, we, they don't hire a CEO and ask him, how are you going to stop e-bikes? Eh, it's kind of like they're chasing a thousand other things. So th that's just my own point of view here on that. And, you know, I encourage you to think more deeply about the causation of resistance, if you will, to improvements. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Horace, as always, for a uh, another illuminating and enlightening session. And yeah, uh, folks, do come check out the Micromobility membership. We are going to be having some really phenomenal webinars coming up, including hopefully one with Mark Fronmeyer from Arkimoto talking about that vehicle and also as well some other vehicles in very similar veins, which I'm very excited to announce Ooh, exciting. in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Horace. <laughs>